Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrew. Now available at all your finest retailers. And boy, we'd love to talk to you about more. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? If you order from Brewers Publications, you get 25% off. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, we'll be giving you the beer news, because it turns out there's a lot of beer news going on during these strange times. And then we're going to go into the library, talk about a couple things that we've been looking at, reading, and thinking over. And then, of course, going off into the brewery to you know talk about our brewing adventures and some new toys that you can play with. We'll give you a quick tip. We'll give you something other... Uh, you may notice no lounge this week because reasons. <laughs> because there's no lounge this week. But before we do any of that amazing stuff, please take a listen to these messages from the people that make our show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF IOTA 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon Online, a virtual gathering of homebrewers happening this June 18th through 20th. With an all-star lineup of speakers, HomebrewCon Online is an opportunity to enhance your brewing skills and knowledge, all from the comfort of your own home. Tune in for live seminars, demonstrations, virtual expos, meetups, and happy hours. Learn more and register at homebrewcon.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. As always, we're going to start off with a few announcements, and Drew's going to start by telling you about the new episode of The Brew Files. Yeah, so the last episode of The Brew Files that came out was me sitting down with my good friend Julian Shrago of Beechwood Brewing Company in Long Beach, talking about, well, how he makes IPA. And it turns out, he does a pretty good job at it. So you might want to give it a listen in order to learn his secrets about how he makes his IPAs. And Denny, I think we'll talk a little bit later about your experience with one of his, too. Yeah, really. Uh, that one that I had so far is really, really good, man. Nice straight-ahead IPA. Yep. We also want to let you know that our next episode, whenever it comes out, is going to be an all-Q&A show. So uh, please send in your questions to podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and we will try and get to as many of them as we can. Yeah, and remember, if you, give them in, if you get them into us earlier, we'll have more time to actually give you a real answer. Yeah, right. The, the more time we have to research, the greater the chance that you'll have an answer that actually makes sense. But uh, this is also a good time to talk about our weird schedule. You know, uh, we used to have one podcast or the other coming out every Wednesday, and you may have noticed that we haven't really been keeping up with that lately, because that's the way the world is these days. Uh, Drew's work schedule is really bizarre, and just for any number of reasons, uh, we've been kind of having an irregular schedule, which I assume is going to keep up for a while, so... Uh, just keep watching our website or Facebook or any of those cool social media things, and uh, we'll let you know whenever a new episode comes out. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast player, so you'll never miss an episode. Well, that's just too easy, isn't it? I know. I like to make it easy on people. But yeah, we're, we're trying to get back to a regular schedule. It's just a little weird right now. That's right. Now... If you do want to hang out with us, we've got a couple places where we're going to be hanging out in the near future. First one that's coming up is going to be on June 11th, on, that's a Thursday, from 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We are going to be hanging out with sponsor Atlantic Brewing Supplies. If you go to the Atlantic Brewing Supplies' Facebook page, you can actually reserve. It will be online. 
Denny and I will be there. We'll do a little song and dance, a little soft shoe, and we'll also take your questions and, well, generally BS around. And if I'm in the right mood, I might even bring along the ukulele. You've been warned. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be scary. And then uh, a week after that is the Homebrew Con Online, uh, the virtual Homebrew Con, since we're not going to be uh, able to get together in person like we always do. And that's going on June 18th through the 20th. There are over 20 live seminars that have been going on, uh, meetups, uh, lots of cool demos that will be happening that you can watch. To sign up for it, go to homebrewcon.org. It costs $99 just for the seminars, or for $132, you can get the seminars and an American Homebrewers Association membership. That's five bucks off, which is a great deal because uh, you need to be a member to uh, go to HomebrewCon online. So uh, if you're already a member, it's 99 bucks. If you are going to become a new member, it's 132 we will be appearing three times on uh, June 18th at 6.15 p.m. This is all uh, left coast time. Uh, there is a forum meetup that will be happening, and uh, I'll be there, uh, one of the hosts of it, and maybe Drew will drop by and uh, make fun of me. Uh, at uh, On the 19th, the next day, at around 3 p.m., there's going to be a happy hour hosted by Justin Crossley of the uh, Brewing Network. And Drew and I are going to be guests on there for a few minutes right around 3 o'clock. So come on by for the happy hour and have a beer with us, uh, a virtual beer, of course. And on June 20th, that's Saturday, about 3.30 p.m., Drew and I will be doing our seminar on homebrew mythology and why it matters. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. So anyway, stop on by. Don't forget, go to homebrewcon.org to register and to get all the information about what's going to be going on. Indeed, and don't forget that next year's HomebrewCon, cross your fingers, folks, is going to be in San Diego, sunny old San Diego. And if you join, I think, if you join for this year's HomebrewCon and have to get a membership, it'll still be good by the time that you have to register for next year's HomebrewCon. So, you know, you might be some clever planning. Oh, very clever indeed. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Hmm... Well, we don't know yet. We've just wrapped up our uh, charity drive for Not One More Vet. And for this uh, next one, we're thinking about doing something for uh, one of the many funds out there for uh, relief and help for restaurant and or brewery workers. So uh, we got several of those we're looking at, and uh, hopefully by next time we will have made a decision and let you know who you guys can help out. There you go. Always good to throw a buck or two to a charitable cause, so get on it. And now, it's time for your feedback. feedback. And we have one piece of feedback today. It comes from Casey Owen on the uh, CO2 capture topic that we talked about a little bit. And Casey wrote in to say, uh, I love the podcast. I was listening to episode 117 where you mentioned ways to try and capture and reuse CO2, and I thought I'd share an idea I had that should be easy enough to do. So I do all my fermentations in kegs, and I hook up from the gas outpost of the fermenting keg to the gas in post on a second keg that I want to purge. Fill the second keg with water and hook up a picnic tap with it open to the liquid out. Drop the tap into a bucket of water. Fermentation pushes the water out, leaving just CO2, and you could swap the picnic tap line for a spunding valve to retain pressure. That will purge your oxygen from an empty keg while pressurizing what you're fermenting. Keep up the awesome podcast. I bought my dad a copy of Simple Homebrewing, and his quality has already gone up. Well, now if only ours would, huh? Well, we're old. We can only go down from here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? That's an interesting idea. I'm not sure that it was going to work, uh, but maybe, maybe Casey has actually tried it. I couldn't exactly tell from his letter. No, I think he, I think he has uh, has done it. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be a little curious. I don't think you could do it with a like, a, you say like a saison yeast that's pressure sensitive, because um, you're you're yeah. having to push out a fair amount of uh, liquid. Yeah, you know, I, I, maybe I'll just have to try this sometime. I, and I would be worried about back pressure and stuff like that too. But uh, mm -hmm. th this is probably a good time to note that uh, a few weeks, a month ago. 
people were uh, really freaking out about being able to get CO2. A lot of them couldn't. Uh, I know that that was the case around here. But uh, the place that I get my CO2 has opened back up with a, a new protocol. You call ahead, place your order, give them your credit card information, let them know when you're going to be there, and they just set your tank outside. You drop off the old one and pick up the new one. So, uh, you know, that might be the case for a lot of you guys, too. So uh, if you've been having trouble getting CO2, I really recommend you give your supplier a call and see if they have some sort of uh, modified system so you can get your tanks filled again. Because I don't know about you, but it's time for me to do that. Yeah, well, and for me, it, I'll also offer an, up another piece of advice. If you have like a party store in the area or somebody who does soda and beer distribution for, say, restaurants and, and bars and whatnot, they have trucks where they drive around and deliver CO2 to people. Now, I, maybe I can get away with this because I know the owner, but I've, I've been having them deliver CO2 to me. So, Yeah, I, I, I doubt if they're going to be uh, delivering your average five-pound bottle. The other thing I've seen around here, though, is that there are a couple growler fill stations that will actually fill your CO2 tanks. Uh, I don't know how that works, but again, that could be something to check out if you guys are in need of CO2. Well, I was going to say, the same shop that delivers me uh, my tanks, they've actually gone around to homebrew stores in the area, and they've set them up with CO2-powered pumps. So, the you know, they'll have, like, say, three 25-pound tanks or something like that uh, hooked up in series, and there's a little CO2-powered pump and then a valve that allows them to actually pump liquid CO2 out of those tanks into your five-pounder. So Cool. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. You know, so you might want to check and see if that system's available in your area as well. But enough CO two, enough gaseous talk. Let's go talk some beer. We're gonna head over to the pub so we can talk about the beer life. We'll see you there right after these messages. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. As a family-owned and run business, Yeast invites you and your family to be even more involved with homebrewing this spring with our Spring Saver private collection. Dive into the science behind brewing and the unique characteristics of the four different species in this release. Inspired by our Oregon roots, 1217 West Coast IPA allows your hops and malts to shine with a balanced profile. The complexity of 3031 Saison Brett blend is perfect for warmer temps, and aging will improve with the season. Rounding out the possibilities is 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis for your next kettle sour. Test your skills with one of our pro brewer recipes at yeastlab.com. These strains are available now through the end of June. Welcome to the Experimental Homebrewing Virtual Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in cyberspace. We are sitting here today, and we are drinking. What are you having, Drew? Uh, I am having, well, kind of fitting given who our last guest was on the show, uh, a.k.a. Julian from Beachwood. I'm having his Alpha Neo, which is a IPA made with the Neo-Mexicana-style hops. I think it's made with Neo 1, hence the name. And... It is an interesting beer. It's not quite a hazy, but it's definitely not a traditional West Coast IPA. But more importantly, those Neo-Mexicanos hops, a lot of them have a very coconutty, woody type uh, flavor to them. So not like old school hops where it, the wood is sort of like, hey, pine or, or oakish flavors, but actual like coconut husk and coconut flesh. And I don't usually like those hops in an IPA. 
I don't know why. I think, I mean, I think it just distracts from what I want, which is I want some of that bitterness and it's just a, a, a different flavor. And maybe my palate just hasn't grown used to it. But this Alpha Neo, uh, from Julian, which he's shipping around California right now, I gotta, I gotta admit, it's pretty dang good because I think it's halfway to reminding me of a, a pina colada. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So if you get, get your hands on it, Alpha Neo, uh, from Beachwood Brewing Company, Really choice, a uh, really interesting spin on an IPA. And you, sir? You know, I understand what you're saying about distracting from the bitterness. I, I remember the first time I used mosaic hops, uh, back when it was still experimental. Got a huge bag of them from Sierra Nevada, brought them home, made a beer exclusively with them. And I was getting so much blueberry flavor out of it that I couldn't really tell that there was any bitterness there. So anyway, I, I've experienced that same kind of thing. And for me, right at the moment, I'm having a glass of sparkling water. Uh, I, I've been for the last month or two or however this is, however long this has been going on, I've been doing a lot of stress drinking. Uh, you know, starting about three in the afternoon, I just kind of want to get blotto and stop thinking about it all. And, and, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with that. But uh, a couple beers a day turned into three and then into four and then into five. And, you know, and five, 10% beers in a day can, can have an impact on you. And again, everybody's tolerance and, and desires are going to be different. And that's what it was for me. Uh, I'm not, this is not judgmental in any way. I just decided that. I was really getting tired of waking up every morning with a hangover and feeling lousy all day long. And I, I'm not ready to give up drinking completely, uh, which is kind of what Drew has gone to. But I am kind of, I'm definitely trying to uh, get myself into drinking less, uh, you know, maybe days without or days with only one or two beers or a, a water in between so that uh, I'm not just sitting there mindlessly sucking down the beer. So uh, at any rate, that's that's my confession. Uh, my stress drinking has been getting out of hand. And uh, while I'm not going to stop it completely, I'm trying to get it under control. Well, and I'd be really curious to hear from our listeners exactly uh, how your Blur's days have been going. And have you found that you've had to set rules about what you're doing or, you know, sort of step back and reevaluate how your beverage intake is going? Yep. And like I said, no judgment involved here. Uh, I'm just curious to hear how you guys are doing and uh, if any of you guys are like me. So, okay, enough of true confessions time. Let's move on to beer law. Ooh, what could be more boring? <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of interesting. So now a lot of things are changing because of the way COVID-19 is working, you know, both uh, lockdowns, what's allowed, what's not allowed, what's going to be allowed, what is happening now. Uh, so this is a, a rapidly changing picture. But if you're not really aware of it, so there's a, a federal agency, the TTB, right? It used to be part of the ATF, uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms. Uh, it's now called the TTB, which is what, Trade and Taxation Bureau or something like that. Um and the TTB issues industry rules and guidelines, and they have kind of a federal authority to sort of put general mandates in place. And not surprisingly, given all the stuff that's happening, they've made some changes to what the breweries can and can't do. And they issued these circulars, uh, I think about every quarter to sort of spell out the rules. And they just did one after the pandemic stuff started to happen. All the lockdowns were going and it was interesting to see some of the stuff that they changed because I think it's stuff that we don't think about in the beer business that much. So for one, they changed what they considered to be uh, inducements. So if you don't know what an inducement is, that's the, the notion of, hey, Mr. Bar Owner, how about I buy you a kegerator if you promise to give me two tap handles, right? Or, hey, here, have a bunch of free stuff so you can give it out to your patrons or put it up on your walls or something like that. Most of the country doesn't have real strict rules around that, or I should say not really super tight rules. California has really tight rules about what they consider inducements. So breweries, uh, for instance, can't go and buy somebody a keg or at least not above board without possibility of fine. So there are changes in, in this TTB circular about what they consider to be inducements to allow a little bit more uh, laxity. There's also things that 
in the past, if you had beer or spirits that were unsold as a retailer, you couldn't just return them to the brewery or the distributor to get credit or money back, right? You couldn't get a refund on it. Um, they're allowing that now. So they're allowing unsold beer and spirits to actually be returned for cash and credit. Um, used to be that uh, there or there are rules in place about how long a brewery or a retailer can or distributor can give a retailer time to pay back, you know, their invoices. So, hey, Bob, I sold you three kegs. You got to give me money for that within 30 days, right? And I think that's the general rule. It's in net 30. They're now actually allowing that credit to be extended up to 120 days. And again, those rules are in place to prevent things like, say, a big brewery coming in and saying, hey, here's a bunch of kegs on me. Don't worry about paying me back for a while, right? Um, other things, uh, there are now going to be the ability for you to give out gift cards, and they're allowed, you're allowed to give them out to consumers, but you can't tie it to a particular bar, restaurant, or retailer. So if I'm a brewery and I want to give gift cards to my customers... I can't say give you a card that's good at Joe's pub. You know, I have to give you like a Visa cash card or something like that. So again, that's to avoid the idea that I'm giving you inducement or encouraging you to go to this place so that they'll encourage you to buy my beer. And then they also did two other things. They changed the their rules about charity support. And so now breweries will actually be allowed to donate to charities that support beverage retailers and their employees. So, you know, Brew Workers of America, if they had a... If they had a charity, breweries would now actually be allowed to donate to that. They wouldn't be able to in the past. And finally, they uh, they loosened up the rules around hand sanitizer. When all this stuff first started, you, you guys may have heard stories about different breweries getting in trouble for offering hand sanitizer for sale or distributing hand sanitizer. The TTB in that circular loosened the rules on that so that breweries could actually deal with hand sanitizer. So kind of interesting. It's a lot of behind-the-scenes type of material. But it's interesting to see how this stuff shifts. And, of course, the feds will come back later after after they de- deem that this pandemic has passed and probably adjust the rules back down, maybe not as tight or maybe tighter. Well, like I was going to say, it's just going to be a temporary thing, but I guess we don't really know that, do we? Uh, just yeah. like we don't know so much these days. Well, and, and this ties into one of the stories that, uh, that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But uh, here in California, for instance, they just announced that breweries are going to be able to reopen but with lots of different rules and one of those rules of course is about spacing and then in order to make it so possible so that breweries can have enough capacity if you are serving beer you have a a generally very strictly defined area in which you're allowed to serve beer that's what your license covers and if you want to run a say a festival in your parking lot you usually have to get an exemption and a temporary license to cover that that, that new area that you want to do what the California ABC alcohol beverage control is doing is they are now allowing breweries to take up their parking lots areas to make beer gardens without having to apply for an extension of their license or a temporary license. And of course, until such a point in time that they roll back emergency measures. So it's interesting to see how, how that these rules are getting relaxed. That's also really kind of cool to see how many breweries are now opening up beer gardens. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And kind of in line with that, uh, there is a new drive-through brewers market in Portland. A bunch of breweries got together and set up a drive-through market in the parking lot of Old Town Brewing in Portland. You enter one way, you drive down the uh, the line of breweries there that have things available for you. And there are some of my favorite breweries in the Portland area. There, uh, let me see here: Freem, Gigantic, Boy, Stormbreaker, Ruben. Brews, Rogue, and Reverend Nat's Hard Cider. And it's a totally contactless market. You drive through, somehow they float your beverages over to your car. I'm not sure exactly how that that works. But it's a great idea, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing more of those kind of innovative things popping up. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the old town had said that they were going to do different breweries rotating through right. yada yada. So, I mean, it's just kind of interesting to see. So uh, that's, that's a great example of what's happening. The other thing that I think is also interesting was uh, the article about Jester King uh, that we ran across where I guess at some point I got to go see this place, but I guess they basically have a giant farm yeah, and they're right. turning it into a giant outdoor beer garden. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, what kind of was it like 165 acres they have, something like that. And uh, they put in like a two mile trail with uh, tables and benches and stuff like that scattered along it. So you can go out and do a little hiking, enjoy nature, and sit down and enjoy your beer. And apparently it's going so well that they're actually talking about expanding it. And, uh, you know, this is, this is just the kind of creative solution that, uh, we need to see a lot more of. And when you hear about it, you kind of go, well, damn, this is a great thing. Hopefully they'll keep it up. Well, and I'm trying to remember because in the article they had said something about, I think they were looking at, dealing with revenue that was dropping to like 35% or something uh, or no, sorry. Uh, uh, sorry. They, they expected that they were going to have a 75% loss of revenue. And because of other things that they've been doing, like bread production and whatnot and selling start uh, starters for sourdoughs, they've been able to actually drop that to 40%. Now that they can do this, you know, hopefully they can really close the gap and come back up to the full, full speed. So that's kind of cool. And they also talked about scratch brewing up in Illinois uh, who we've talked about before for their sort of foraging ethic in terms of their beer making. They're also on a big wooded property and they're doing some of the same stuff as well. So kind of nifty if you've got the space. Uh, of course, nobody here in LA has the space to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, somebody might. They, uh, they might. I don't know who though. So we'll see. Uh, I do know that uh, our friends up at Transplants, you know, they had a very, they have a very big warehouse that they're in, and so they've they've really opened up everything in that warehouse in order to maximize the amount of people that they can have in there. So it's kind of nice to see. Um, now switching from COVID related topics, I wanted to talk a little bit about there was a really great article in Punch Drink that I had never heard this story before because I guess I just don't pay enough attention to beer trading, and it was about the fact that. There is apparently a whole move about counterfeiting particular bottles of Cantillon, right? And so Cantillon is the beloved sort of uh, small museum historical brewer of super traditional Lambique, and they they did a they did a very special uh, Lambic, and it was uh, the uh, Jean Christomad or JCN, and the uh, it was available in 375s and 750s, and there were only 2,000 bottles of this. And what people started to notice, and this was back a while ago, so like around, I think, 2010, 2011. And in 2012, people started to notice that there were bottles showing up at the JCN with a different label, a label that looked just slightly off. And it turns out there's this whole counterfeit move around counterfeiting this one particular Cantillon beer. And it the part that's surprising to me is the fact that the counterfeits, at least according to this article, have become as valuable as the original beer. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that was truly, truly amazing the way that that worked out. And it just shows you how wacky the world is, huh? I, I mean, I guess the thing that it also points out to me is I guess it's really not the beer inside the bottle that matters for some of these people. Cause well, that's I've, very I've, true with many collectibles, right? It's not the yeah. the in, intrinsic value of the article. It's the uh, the value of, you know, the, the rarity or the resale value. Yeah, well, and I thought, thought it was funny. They were also saying that really now, I guess it's such a thing that you can't have one of the bottles with, at a tasting without having the other bottle as well. You know, you have to taste them as a set. And it's like, okay. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know what? And I'll just uh, skip the whole thing. Thank you. I know. Well, again, I think that's, that's a story that I miss out on not being in the sort of, I've got to chase, I've got to chase all the, the whales uh, type of market. Um, And of course, obviously there are other counterfeiting stories out there, but the Cantillon is near and dear to my heart. So that was the one that I think probably made me go, huh? (laughs) So from counterfeits, I think we should go to the real deal. And in our last story in the beer news today, uh, the Smithsonian, if you guys remember in the past, we talked about the Smithsonian. They had a chair funded or an archivist funded by the Brewers Association to cover the story of American craft beer and the rise of American craft brewing. And of course, Charlie was has been featured in that stuff. And Charlie donated part of his original beer kit, including uh, one of his brew spoons and some of the brew logs that he has 
to this exhibit so that, you know, hey, there you go. And you heard back from listeners who had been and actually seen the exhibit in, in real life. Well, this month's the Smithsonian Magazine actually has a whole um, a, a whole glowing homage to Charlie, right? It's titled The School Teacher Who Sparked America's Craft Beer Revolution. And it's all, you know, toasting to him and, you know, showing some of his original logs and everything else and talking talking about with Charlie. Denny and I have both spent time with Charlie in the past, but it's really kind of nice to see some of the recognition that's going on there. Uh, just, uh, I mean, it is a little bit of a hagiography, but hey, what do you expect? <laughs> really, man. And I'm trying. Uh, I just thought it was interesting that he went from being a teacher to teaching homebrewing to, you know, embracing sort of that hippie ethos. And suddenly, next thing you know, he's running a, a business. Yeah, you know, it's amazing how things like that can happen. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it just it just kind of becomes a natural progression. And of course, I love the fact that uh, the Maltos Falcons are mentioned in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. I got a Smithsonian mention once too when they interviewed Annie. I like that. So it's it's always good to see it's always good to see that. Um, but yeah, we'll include a link to the article. It's free online. Um, although I did notice one thing that was interesting there. They they mentioned also at the same time they mentioned the Falcons. They mentioned the Homebrew Computer Club as being part of this movement. And, and that, that was a club that was with Steve, Steve Jobs and, uh, and Wozniak. And it was interesting to me because I don't think they actually have a beer connection, at least not one I ever heard of. Yeah. Um, hmm. Man, I mean, you know, I, I think that homebrew, though, is just kind of like a, a standardized term for people who do their own stuff. I mean, I know that uh, long before I ever heard of homebrewing beer, when I was a kid, I was into electronics, and we always talked about homebrewed contraptions. Well, I know, but I just think that's an interesting... Well, why are they mentioning in an article with Charlie? Because that's a different, <laughs> a different complication of, of the name. Uh, I guess that they just must have needed a few more words to hit their uh, their goal. There you go. All right. Well, I think that's enough talking about the news. Why don't we go and talk about uh, some stuff you can put into your eye holes in your brain hole? Uh, let me see. What would that be? The library. Oh, the library. Okay. I was trying to figure out how you were going to get beer into your eyes. We're going to take a quick break here while I ponder this uh, mystery of the universe. And when we come back, we'll be over in the library talking about some information you can shove into your body somehow. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, and we're in the library now, and we're going to talk about uh, a few things you can read and watch to uh, expand your beer brewing knowledge. So uh, Drew's got the first one up here, for uh, a YouTube series from Escarpment Labs, some cool guys. Yeah, so we had Chris Saunders on in the past at one of the HomebrewCon shows talking about non-alcoholic beer and making it at home with 
alternative fermentation methodologies. And so Escarpment Labs is a yeast company up in Canada. And like a lot of other companies, I think one of the few good things to come out of all this period of lockdown has been a lot of people going online and putting content together. And so Escarpment Labs actually did an Escarpment Con, and they did a whole, I think it was a week, of different presentations from different brewers about, or sorry, different people from Escarpment and different uh, microbiologists about different things that you could uh, run into, what you could do at home, or even some things like uh, the history of and the future of lager yeast, uh, a sort of a deep dive into diacetyl, um, how to hunt for wild yeast, just all sorts of different things. And there are some really nice little lectures going on, and they generally run like an hour to two. So it's a good way to pump a lot of knowledge into your head you know, while you're doing other things as well. So that's on YouTube. Uh, it's from Escarpment Labs. They have a whole channel. I don't think they put all of Escarpment Con up, up on the YouTube channel, but there's a good portion of it. So if you wanted to learn some more yeasty type stuff, I can't help but recommend that you go listen to the Escarpment Lab series. You know, when you say hunt wild yeast, the first thing that comes into my head is a picture of Elmer Fudd. I was going to say Wasley Rabbits. <laughs> Wasley Weast? Uh, yeah, I know, man. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, we talked to Garrett Garfield a little bit about that, too, because he was into that. But this sounds like some really interesting stuff. I, I think that I'm going to have to actually watch some of these. Yeah, I think it's some really good science that you can learn. I mean, not all of it's going to be super practical to in all levels of brewing, but why not learn it anyway? So, Well, yeah, I mean, you watch it more for, for the entertainment and knowledge value than anything actually coming out of it that you may be able to use. Exactly. And who knows? One or two nuggets, just like everything else. That's what's important. That's right. And then in the other piece that I caught on to, so we all know that I'm a Saison head, and I think a lot of people in America started to learn about Saisons really thanks to the uh, Farmhouse Ales book uh, from Phil Markowski. And that was, what, 2004? It was a while ago. Something, something like that. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Phil, uh, Phil Markowski, yeah, he wrote this book, uh, and it's sort of become the cornerstone of what a lot of people think about Saison. Now, as we've talked about in the past in the show, you know, beer history is poor history indeed. It's a lot of uh, tall tales and a lot of legends. And it seems very clear from other readings that I've done, other research that people have done, that a lot of the stories that are told about Cezanne are, well, sort of false. Apocryphal. There. There you go. That's a, that's a much better way to do it. And so Phil actually had a column in the Beer and Brewing, and it's on beerandbrewing.com, and it's available for everybody to read. Uh, saying of uh, talking about rethinking farmhouse sales, and it's particularly about rethinking farmhouse sales in relation to what we now know about the broader picture of European farmhouse uh, traditions, particularly talking about the stuff that Lars has dug up out of uh, Norway and uh, Latvia and Lithuania. And so it's really kind of cool. And it's talking about some things that he's thinking on and reflecting on 16 years down the line and talking about things like, you know, okay, well, what about Brett? Because farmhouse sales doesn't talk a lot about Brett, but it was there also a, a lot of Brett use in this sort of stuff. And of course, uh, his argument is that commercial examples really at the time didn't have a lot of Brett. So there was, there, there wasn't much reason to do research on it. Um, also talking about old fashioned grains that are coming back in. So really kind of an interesting article, just sort of rethinking a lot of stuff about what farmhouse sale means, what Cezanne means, and what that means in a broader tradition. And he does also give a shout out to one of, I think, one of my favorite beers, which is a, a Petite Prince from Jester King, which is about as tableish a table saison as you can get at like 2.9%. So, you know, the takeaway that I got from it was not so much about history, but about how things in the U.S. have changed things. Uh, he was talking about how the U.S. has kind of redefined IPAs and now it's doing the same thing with farmhouse beers and that's where like a lot of the brett and the mixed cultures have come from so it's it's really not so much that he's expanding on the throwback side mm -hmm. of it as he's talking about how recent innovations have kind of changed things yeah and uh, it's both uh, forward and past looking exactly because that's what lars uh, garshall is all about is is looking back but a lot of what phil talks about he would include in the book these days is newer stuff that's happened. Yeah, well, it's all the Americanification. Yeah, you're right. And like, 
Uh, IPA doesn't resemble English IPA anymore. It now resembles American IPA, and that's been reflected back, and I think that's a similar trend that we're seeing with uh, particularly Saison and Farmhouse. Sometimes IPA resembles the strawberry milkshake. Well, there is that. (laughs) If you want to call that IPA, and don't write in, that's just me. That's just Denny being grumpy. Um, oh, I'm not grumpy. I think it's I think it's highly amusing as long as I don't have to drink it. <laughs> there you go. Well, th- that's a couple of things I think that uh, more than enough uh, for you to waste your time with and engage your brain cells with. So go take a look at it. I'm really kind of curious. I would love to do a breakdown of where Saison has gone over the years because, I mean, again, it's the style I know the best and probably the style I'm obsessed with the most. So uh, sort of interesting grist for the fodder. Yes, indeed it is. And speaking of grist, that was so clever, Drew. I'm really amazed that you gave me that uh, that opening. We're going to head over to the brewery now, and uh, we're going to talk about what we've been brewing, uh, what we're going to brew, how it's going, and uh, maybe some new things coming out that you can use in your brewery. So stick around. We are going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Well, welcome back, and thank you for sticking around. Uh, once again, you can hear things burbling. Smells are in the air. Glug, glug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, uh, the smells will be gone once I take a shower. Very good. We are in the brewery, and it is time for us to talk, well, not only about some of the stuff we've been doing recently, but also some of the stuff that's coming down the pike that you guys will be able to get to play with uh, in fairly short order. So without further ado, we've talked about some of these things in the past, but I'm finally to the point where I'm now tasting them. And so that STA1 Saison, you guys will remember a couple episodes back, I did a an interview with White Labs uh, talking about their STA1 uh, or non-STA1 Saison strain, uh, which was really actually a Saison blend, but a non-diastatic cheese. And I finally got the Saison that I had done with it into the keg, carbonated, and did a tasting on it. And it's really kind of interesting to me because the aroma pushes more of the grain than I'm used to with a Saison uh, character. But then behind that, you start to get all that banana, that clove, that cinnamon, the nutmeg. Um, So I actually think it would be a really good uh, blend to use with a really characterful grain. So I wouldn't go using just like yield bland Pilsner because then I think you're just going to get a very boring uh, beer. Um, and again, in the flavor of seeing more of that cinnamon, ginger, and cloves, and getting, again, sort of a crackery malt character. So again, I think you'd be best served by using a good base malt. And then um, very long and spicy finish. And what's, I think what I walked away with as an impression was that it got somewhere between, a character somewhat between, say, one of the Blousey strains. So uh, YU's 3726 Farmhouse, and I think Imperial Rustic is also Blousey's. Um, and the French Saison strains, so like 3711, um, 
kind of missing something in the back end, I think, that I that I really want, but I could see where it could be a very useful blend of yeast to use. So almost Saison-like, but not completely. I wonder if uh, maybe if you didn't take a, your regular Saison recipe, maybe if you formulated something specifically to go with it, uh, it would it would knock you out more. Probably. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I think I, I think it was a a good. I, I well, it's not. I think it was. It is a good beer. I think it's just a little bit different than I would normally expect. Now, right. the, the other things I've been brewing, because of course I've been brewing a lot. I did my cream ale, my I Dream of Jenny, which you can find on the website, and you know it's just American two row and flaked corn. And I think if I remember correctly, in that one I used um, fairly certain I used Peloton from Mechagrade. And, you know, just a little bit of Magnum, a little bit of Lamet, and a little bit of 3470. And what can I say? It's my cream ale. I love that beer. You know, it's one of those ones that you can put down three pints in a hurry. So uh, that that turned out pretty well. I highly suggest as we're moving into the warmer months that you guys uh, give this a shot. And I just got that Bankish Mild. If you remember the show with Peter talking about Partigal, I talked about I was going to make a, a Bank-style Mild from 1921. It's very interesting to me because I made an invert syrup, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit, but I made an invert syrup for this, and the molasses, and this was an invert one, so it's a very, very pale, very little molasses. The molasses actually comes through in the nose. It's astonishing to me. It's also a much paler beer than I would have expected from what I normally think of as mild, but then again, what I normally think of as mild is an American interpretation of mild, which is almost brown and <laughs> yeah, black. really. So, yeah, I've I've seen quite a number of pale milds. Though I shouldn't say quite a number. I've seen enough pale milds to uh, believe that that's not an unusual thing. No, I agree. It just it, it defied my expectations because my expectations are set around the mild I normally make. And then right. the last thing I just brewed, and I'm really looking forward to. It's cold crashing right now, and it's about to get dry hops. I made a beer called Mitten Winds IPA. And what is Mitten Winds? Well, Jeff and Susan Rankert uh, were kind enough to send Denny and I both some Michigan Hop Alliance Chinook. And the trick about the Michigan Chinook is it's supposed to smell and taste like pineapple. And I know when I smelled the boil kettle, the boil kettle to me smelled almost like um, upside, uh, upside down pineapple cake. It had that nice little uh, candyish sort of, uh, of flavor to it, or aroma, I should say. And otherwise, uh, Mitten Winds, the reason why I'm calling it Mitten Winds is, of course, a lot of people like to refer to Michigan as the Mitten. And uh, Chinook is not only the name of an, an Indian tribe and also a type of salmon, but it is also the name for a certain set of winds in Oregon. So given that the Chinook hops are Oregon-based or Oregon-sourced, and uh, I just decided I would make a cute reference and call it Mitten Winds. Man, really, you got like every angle of clever in there. Yeah, and the beer itself, I'm really looking forward to this because this is just uh, La Manta, the Opal 22, which I hadn't had a chance to play with yet, which is supposed to, I think, come off more graham crackery than toffee, and also a little bit of Metolius just to give it a little Munich bump, and then uh, basically bittered with Warrior, and then uh, Chinook for five minutes in the boil, uh, Chin uh, Michigan Chinook uh, in Whirlpool at 170 degrees for 20 minutes, and then it's going to get dry hopped with uh, two ounces of Chinook for two days at 38 degrees, and we'll see how that cool. works. Oh, and it's also right. using the new uh, Y East, uh, what was it, 1217, the West Coast yeah. IPA, which right. you just had experience with. Yeah, uh, I'm now on to my second beer with it, and tomorrow I'll be brewing a third. Uh, I am really, really liking that yeast. As a matter of fact, I have unofficially named it Denny's second favorite. Uh, oh. It's it's really nice. It is crisp and attenuative. Uh, so, uh, I've been, I used the same grist in, in the first two. I used, uh, uh, Mecha grade Lamada as a base. And then I added, oh, maybe like 15%, a couple pounds worth of the Opal 44, mm -hmm. which they kind of say is a, is a toffee malt. Mm -hmm. And even, and even just a touch of carapils. Like I said, when I, I made the first one, just because it'd been so long since I used carapils, I was, you know, dying to toss it in there and see if I could detect it again. And the first one was really great. Uh, I like the second version even better. It was the same grist, just different hops, and I had just kind of dialed in my hop usage. Uh, I, I really am getting the toffee flavor from the, uh, the uh, Opal 44, but uh, there's enough bitterness there to kind of cut through that sweetness and balance it out really nicely. 
Uh, I have a German Pils in the uh, fermenter, and I just started cold crashing that today. Uh, I used uh, 100% mecha-grade uh, Pelton malt in that. And uh, let me see, I think that I bittered it with some Magnum and finished it with some Strissel Spalt. I uh, used the Lollamon Diamond Lager yeast on it. Uh, and uh, I, I will tell you right now that uh, being a yeast abuser, I sprinkled in one pack without rehydrating for a 1055 beer at uh, 52 degrees Fahrenheit. I had uh, signs of fermentation within 18 hours, and at 24 hours, it was just going crazy fermenting. So there you go. All the people say you need to use multiple packs or uh, rehydrate or whatever. It's now 10 days since I brewed it. Um, let me see, I spent about oh, about a week at 52. Then I cranked it up to 72 for a few days, took a gravity reading this morning. It had gone from 10.55 to 10.08. So that's when I decided to go ahead and crash it. Uh, I have a, a bottle, a taster of it carbing in my uh, refrigerator like right now. I... When I do a gravity sample on a beer, I like to sneak a taste. So I get, I take about 12 ounces from my gravity sample, put it in a 20 ounce pet bottle with a carbonator cap on it, hit it with about 30 pounds of CO2, stick it in the freezer for 45 minutes, and I have a cold carb sample ready to go. So uh, this afternoon, I'll be checking out that one. I've been intending to brew another lager Next, either like a, a Czech dark lager, there were some great recipes that just showed up on the AHA forum for that, or maybe a Munich Dunkel or Vienna lager, but I want to use the yeast from the pills, and that's not quite done yet. So I have some yeast that I saved from the West Coast IPA, and tomorrow I'm going to be making a what I'm calling a, a summer pale ale with that. Uh, the base of it is going to be some raw pale malt that I have had around for at least two years, maybe more, unopened bags. So uh, part of the reason for brewing that is to check that out and see if it's still good and use it up if it is. Uh, I will probably throw in just a touch of Crystal 40. Uh, I would use some 60 if I had it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that's going to be with the West Coast uh, IPA yeast again and uh, bittering and first word hopping with some of the Michigan Chinook and then the only other hop addition We'll be uh, dry hopping with uh, Amarillo, Centennial, and Cascade. There you go. That sounds like a mix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does, man. Well, you know, it's like I was looking through the hop freezer, and it's like, oh, look, I got these. I got these. I got these. This is my one of my favorite old-time blends of hops, Amarillo, Cascade, and Centennial. So I'm going to try and keep this a beer that's, you know, between 5 and 5.2%. Uh, just so it'll be a, a light, quaffable summer pale ale. That sounds good to me. And then speaking of things that you can play with and revisit, uh, again, we talked a little bit about Invert Serp back with the Bankish Mild I just talked about. And, of course, Peter and I talked a lot about Invert Serp in the, in the, in the episode about his book and the brew files. And the thing was, is that we talked about, oh, well, you got to make your own because n nobody's making it here. Nobody's commercially importing it. And I swear, just after we released that episode, I got a link from, uh, was it uh, homebrewing.org uh, or Adventures in Homebrewing and Austin Homebrew Supply, which is the same company. And they are now carrying, produced by somebody in Michigan uh, at Becker Brewing Company, a whole range of invert syrups from zero to four. So you can now actually buy homebrew quantities of American-made invert syrup ready to go as a brewer's adjunct. And, yes, I'm going to try and get them on the show because I'm kind of excited by it. <laughs> I have uh, heard people complain that it's awfully expensive, but on the other hand, good stuff is often expensive. And they uh, they go to a lot of work to produce this stuff. And since they have the only source, if you want it, then it's worth the money, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking about in order to make some of these invert syrups, unless you're doing just the dilution method, and I don't think they're doing the dilution method to make this stuff. If you're making proper invert syrup, it takes a good long while and a lot of care in order to not scorch everything. So the fact that they're doing this and they're making it in homebrew level quantities 
is fantastic. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be a fun one to play with. Again, you can find that at Adventures in Homebrewing and Austin Homebrew Supply. So uh, Becker Invert Syrups. And, yeah, I'm going to try and get them on here because I think that's going to be a rad little ingredient for people to play with. I know Andy Black, when he was down at uh, Yorkshire Square, tried to import Invert Syrup. And the problem is in order to get it, you have to buy so much of it that it was basically a brewery lifetime supply for him with the amount they'd be able to use. So th- right. in this case, it's available to us now. <laughs> and the other, the other interesting thing that popped up this week is uh, I got an email from Lollamand about a new strain of non-Saccharomyces brewing yeast that they're calling uh, Philly Sour. It's part of their Wild Brew series. Uh, it is actually kind of discovered by the uh, University of Sciences in Philadelphia, and basically uh, it's a it's a sour yeast, but it's a non-Saccharomyces sour yeast. Uh, the culture is Lacantia, something like that. L a c h a n c e a. So any of you science types, you can pronounce that for me. It says it will produce sour beer in seven to ten days at twenty-five degrees Celsius. The acidity produced is described as smooth, elegant, and subtle. The resulting brew is highly balanced with flavor notes of red apple, peach, and honeydew melon, which sounds darn interesting, doesn't it? It, it does, and I'm, I'll be curious. I know that people, uh, I read through Milk the Funk when all this stuff started to first come out, um, and Milk the Funk was talking about other people doing experiments with a very similar, or maybe the same strains, um, and or that same family, I should say. And their experiences with it. So it'll be, it'll be curious to see, it'll, it'll be curious to see when, when is Lollamon coming out with it? Well, I mean, you know, they're advertising it now. Uh, I talked to, uh, one of my contacts at Lollamond and it's not actually here and available yet. Uh, they said it's like, uh, just coming through customs right now. But one of the cool things about this is, you know, for a lot of like, uh, uh, lactic acid producing yeast, you have to like primary ferment with a different strain and then add the lactic strain later. And this yeast is able to produce both lactic acid and ethanol during the primary. So, uh, you know, it, it's like a one step process. And like I said, seven to 10 days. So sounds darn interesting. And once it gets into the country, uh, we're going to be getting a hold of some to play around with and see what it's like. And, uh, Lolliman tells me this is the, First of not only these wild brew strains, but they have a bunch of interesting new things coming this year. They kind of filled me in on a couple, but I can't really tell you anything other than a little teaser. I was going to say, you tease. I know, man, but you know what? Uh, I swore to keep my mouth shut, and that's generally very hard for me. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> just between you and me, Drew, uh, no, no, no. Uh, so anyway, keep your eyes on... Keep your eyes on what Lollamand is doing. They have a bunch of cool new dry yeasts coming out. There we go. Yeah, so uh, toys continue to, uh, well, they continue to arrive. So, yeah, let's keep playing. It's not like we're doing anything else. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. Uh, you seem pretty busy. Yeah, well, that's my life. Yeah. All right. I think that's enough brewing. I think uh, we're actually not going to even go to the lounge today. Uh, today's is going to be a short show, so we can catch up. And also, no Q&A, because remember, Q&A, all Q&A next show, so get your questions in. That's right. We said it at the beginning of the show. We're saying it now, and we're going to say it again in just a couple minutes. So stick around and get ready for us to be redundant. We'll be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play.
Welcome back, everybody. We're glad you stuck around. We're going to wrap this show up. And before we do that, I want to remind you one more time, next show is all Q&A. So send us your questions to podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and we'll see if we can uh, come up with some sort of decent answers to them. Yep. So I guess we're we're moving on to quick tips now, huh? Yeah, it's quick tip and something other, and we're going to get you on your way back to brewing. So, uh, Denny, you had a quick tip that's related to a previous quick tip. <laughs> yeah, you guys may remember when I talked about uh, how I said you should always make sure that the valve on your fermenter is closed before you start filling it. Uh-huh. Uh, I just want to say again, you should always make sure that the valve on your fermenter is closed before you start filling it. <laughs> my uh, my German pills went in and back out quickly. Fortunately, I only lost a couple cups, maybe definitely less than a quart. But you know, it's it, and I was standing right there by it this time, so it didn't really uh, go on for very long before I was able to get that valve closed. But it's one of those things that I think I'm going to go put a sign on the front of the fermenter: "Is your valve closed?" There you go. Good advice always. And then for me, you, if you pay attention to my Facebooks, and I don't know why you would, you would have caught me uh, doing this. So I had two bags of malt that were unlabeled. So rule one, label your malt. Uh, but I did know that one of the bags contained Opal 44 and the other one contained Opal 22. And so what did I do? I needed Opal 22 for the Mitten Winds IPA. So I went and I did a steep test, and we've talked about the steep test before, but I wanted to make sure that you, you all remembered this. I basically took and crushed up real fine into powder, uh, equal sizes, uh, equal amounts of the bag A and bag B, steeped them for 15 minutes, and then strained them and put them into nice clear glasses of the same size so I could sit them side by side in the same light and figure out which one was darker, because that would be the Opal 44, and the other one would be the Opal 22. So... Just remember, your steep test can help you in more ways than you can imagine. But first, label your stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Label your stuff. You won't have to do the steep test, but if you don't, then you can. Uh, as we both prove, neither one of us is perfect. Yep. And no, sometimes you just forget. All right. And that <laughs> leaves us to something other than beer, because, of course, there's always time for something other than beer. And... Denny's been talking recently about all of his fondness for British television, and I'm following suit on this particular one because I'd heard about this show for years and I never sat down to watch it, but it's available on Amazon Prime now. It's a show called Time Team. And Time Team. Oh, really? You hadn't seen that yet? I I hadn't seen that. So, Time Team, for those of you who don't know, is a British series that ran on Channel 4 for, I think, like 20 years. And Amazon Prime has a whole bunch of it on. And it's essentially, hey, we got a team of archaeologists and three days to try and figure out what's going on at a particular site. So, like one I saw, the uh, reservoir got drained in Dartmoor, and they went because there seemed to be a Neolithic mound there and Neolithic stones, like cairn stones and whatnot. And they did a three-day excavation to try and figure out what was going on at the site and, and discovered, yeah, sure enough, there's like a, a paved road leading up to what looks like a ritual site with a circle and all this other sort of cool things. And, you know, it's just that right mix of learning with comedy and a, and a sort of, um, I don't know, just fascinating, cool, weird stuff that you never would have think, to think about. <laughs> and so Fascinating, cool, weird stuff, man. That's yeah. right up my alley. Yeah, and also talking about like, oh, I, I think another one of the shows I watched had them uh, excavating an old mill. And what was really cool was the guy who's like their uh, landscape guy, you know, who looks around at the landscape and tries to figure out what's gone on in the past, figured out, okay, well, we got this mill here, but judging by the way that there are these cuts and these hedgerows in, in, in the landscape, there must have been an earlier mill over here, and even more importantly, a very, very, very old mill way over there, like something that was mentioned in the Doomsday Book, you know, so around the time of Harold uh, and all that. So really kind of nifty just to go, oh, wow, that's cool that you could tell that. So... Just It's a nice show. Again, it's called Time Team. Uh, it is available, at least I found it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure there are other places to get to it. But go watch Time Team. I I was fascinated by it. You know, and I've got a, a new TV favorite that I've been getting into lately, too. And actually, it's an old TV favorite. Uh, I found out that uh, my for my Fire Stick, there's a, 
uh, This Old House app. So I have been going back to the very first episodes of This Old House in 1979. Uh, I originally watched them when they first aired, and it is just a trip. I mean, at least for me, it, it, it's a real nostalgia thing to go back and watch this. But maybe the the best part of it all is seeing the clothes and hairstyles from 1979. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'd be a little concerned about that. That might that might hurt my brain. <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting. And the other thing is uh, watching them do all these renovations and stuff. Uh, which, you know, if they went into these houses now, they would look at this stuff from 1979 and say, who would ever put orange formica on a countertop, uh, you know, and tear out all the stuff that they just did that they're so proud of. <laughs> but anyway, if, if you're a This Old House fan like I am, uh, you can go back to the very, very beginnings of the show, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting and fun, and it's one of those things that I'm just, like, geeking out on. There we go. Nothing like uh, digging into some old, uh, well, that's a, just another form of old history, isn't it? Yeah, that's what, man, when you were talking about the uh, time team, I was saying, well, you know, it's kind of just the same thing. So, <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums. Uh, there's a new one that I'm on called the Beer Garden. A bunch of guys from uh, Brews Brothers kind of set up a new forum. Uh, mainly, I'm on the AHA forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrewing channel. Uh, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And remember, that's where you send your questions for the next episode, the all Q&A. And you can also uh, email each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can leave us a voicemail or shoot a text to 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs>